0: Bibles to Revelation 20. We are continuing our series. In Revelation, we're getting near the end, um, but we're in chapter 20 and near the end of chapter 20. So, as you're turning there, uh, can I ask who uh, has yet to take a summer vacation? All right, who's already taken their summer vacation? All right, it's about almost half and half. We, we have ours later on this summer, in uh, early August, so we're looking forward to that. And I ask that because there's uh, an aspect, I uh, didn't plan it this way, but what I shared uh, from Isaiah 25 related, but also today's message, uh, there's this aspect of looking forward to something uh, that you know, can propel us and characterize our lives, we can look forward to vacation. There are certain days in our lives that we have uh, that we look forward to just things like vacations but more momentous things. Uh, So uh, for some of us I know there's probably some really big days coming up within the next year or so. I know at least one couple getting married this fall and I'm sure they're looking forward to that. Um, We have uh, baptisms uh, lined up for October and there's already a couple, I think two or three people who uh, plan to get baptized so that's another thing to look forward to. we get to celebrate as a family. My, our oldest son is turning 30, um, it, which is amazing. Uh, he's turning 30. Uh, Peg and I were young teenagers when we had him. but <laughs> uh, Just kidding. We weren't. We were in our 20s. Um, <laughs> just so you can figure out our ages. But, but anyhow, that's a big day. It's exciting to think about that. Uh, there might be other days some of us are having, some, maybe some of you guys are retiring within the next year or five years. That can be a big day to kind of get to that place. I. I don't plan to ever fully retire, but there'll be a day when I hopefully can step back into a Pastor Emeritus role of some sort and just let some other guy lead. I look forward to that. That'll be great. So there are these big days that we look forward to, and those characterize our lives, and it's appropriate. Um, There is one day, though, that's bigger than any day that we might have, Uh, bigger than any wedding, bigger than any day of retirement, bigger than any um, other sort of day The day your children were born, the day you were married, uh, the day you came to Christ. There's a great day that awaits us all. And it awaits us and all of humanity. It's the final day. The day of days of all. And it's described in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. This final day. There's no more important day. There is no more important day for all humanity without any exception. There will be a day when we stand before God himself and he will judge all humanity in perfect justice, perfect goodness and faithfulness. And So we're going to look at this section of scripture and think about this day. And my prayer is for us that as we consider it, that it would really change our lives. That we would live each day in light of that day. that, That really we would be thunderstruck by this reality of this great day that awaits us all. So We're going to look in Revelation 20, and by the way, uh, these are some excerpts from famous paintings on the final day. Uh, Rubens is the main one, and then I had to put some Michelangelo in there, and I don't necessarily recommend everything he does. Uh, I couldn't use him because he uses mostly nude people, but anyhow, there's two uh, great just depictions of people's faces as they face that final day uh, that I had to include. So just some backdrop. Uh, it's, It's a day people have thought about. It's a day that we ought to think about. So let's pray. And ask God to speak to us. And, and really, I hope it would be your prayer. Lord, would you mark my life with an awareness of this final day that would change me in every way, would change every day. So let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, we thank you that uh, not only is this day important, but you've given us in your word everything we need to be ready for this day. To be ready individually and to be used of you to help others be ready. There's no greater day than this day that awaits us. And so I pray, Lord, you'd use me as I teach from this section of Scripture. And for all of us, would you speak to us? And would we be changed, Lord, by your word in this way? Would we learn to live every day in light of this final day and all that it means? So help me, Lord, how I need your help and how much you love us. We're grateful for that. So we anticipate your power, O God, as we proclaim, as I proclaim your word, as we listen. Would you work, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. This is uh, the next part of this vision that John is seeing. He's, we've already covered, he's seen uh, the demise of Satan. He's seen the victory of the saints, the demise of Satan, the judgment of Satan. And now in chapter 20, verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God's word from Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It's describing the final day, the day of judgment. Judgment day, as we call it. And I believe it's here in scripture so that we would learn to live every day in light of this final day where God himself will judge all humanity with perfect justice. So that serves as our outline as well for this time. We're going to look at the fact that it's God himself who will judge. He will judge all humanity and then we'll talk about the perfect justice that he brings in this judging. So it starts out, John sees a great white throne. we Seeing the word throne used a lot in Revelation. As I said last week, 47 times in Revelation, throne is mentioned. But this is a little different. It's a throne. A throne is a place of ruling. It's a place of authority and power. And so Revelation is a lot about these uh, interactions between different thrones. Ultimately, the throne of God uh, triumphs over all thrones, God's rule. Um, but here it's called a great white throne. We've seen the word white used a lot in Revelation. White symbolizes holiness. Purity, goodness, uh, glory, uh, all mixed together. That's what white symbolizes in Revelation. So we've seen it used a lot. Jesus is, is white in his appearance. The saints wear white. The the uh, angelic hosts wear white. And now it's a great white throne. But it's not just a white throne. It's a great white throne. There's no other description like this in the book of Revelation. So it's to be understood that it is a throne. It's a place of ruling and reigning of dominion and authority of of um, of all those things and that word throne and it's white it's a it's a throne of holiness and goodness and glory but it's a great white throne it is greater than all other thrones it's a great throne it's god's throne so that great white throne is meant to give a picture uh, of what actually is behind what John is seeing that it represents god in his rule over all things that God himself will judge and rule all humanity he does now but he will on that final day express that rule and all humanity will stand before him as he rules from the great white throne as he rules as God alone as he rules as the Holy One as he rules as the one who has the prerogative to determine the destiny of all people now Fallen humanity doesn't like this. We like to be captains of our own destiny, so to speak. We like to be the ones who determine uh, where we we go. And we like to be the ones who really rule. And really the the brokenness of humanity, the sin of humanity, is that we are constantly seeking to usurp the great white throne. We want to be on the throne. We want to rule our own lives. And we don't like the idea that God himself has some sort of prerogative over our lives. And we rebel against that. That's, that's really at the heart of sin. is this rebellion against the right rule of God. And so we don't like to hear about this. Uh, we like things to be determined by ourselves alone. Yet God alone deserves to rule all. He invented all things. Every single concept that exists, every single idea that exists, every single reality that exists is from God himself. He is the originator of God. Everything in in his infinite being, and his glory and greatness. He invented all things. He created all things in perfect holiness and goodness. He sustains all things. He controls all things. He rules over all things. All things are intended ultimately to reflect and express and, and to enjoy and magnify his glory. His supreme glory. He alone is God, and he is perfect in in his being, in his might and glory, and everything is ultimately about him. From him and through him and to him are all things. That's the reality of Scripture. That's the reality of existence. That's reality whether we like it or not. And in our own fallen nature, we don't like it. But it's actually a good thing that it's ultimately all about him because he's good and he's faithful and he's glorious and he deserves everything to be about him. He is worthy of everything being about him. And that's what's behind, these truths are what's behind this great white throne. And in scripture we see him made known in various ways to, uh, to communicate to us that we would understand just how great and holy and worthy and how sovereign he is and Just a a number of scriptures to touch on briefly. Paul speaks of God this way in 1 Timothy 6. He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable lights, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The prophet Isaiah encounters God in the early part of his prophetic ministry. And he says in chapter 6 of Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what the great white throne is about. God in all of his glory, all of his reign, all of his holiness, all of his prerogative to rule over all, to judge all, to to respond to all in perfect justice. That's the great white throne. That's the reality behind all realities that God rules and reigns as the Holy One. It's all about Him, all from Him, through Him, and to Him. And so in Revelation 20, we see this great white throne described. And, and it says that the uh, from His presence, earth and sky fled away. And then no place was found for them. I think there's two aspects to that description and that vision that that John sees. First is God is coming to judge all. He's coming to judge all humanity. He's coming to finalize his plans and to renew creation and so we read elsewhere in scripture that the creation as we know it, this fallen version, is actually consumed by fire. It's it's consumed and then it's going to be renewed. So as he stands on this final day, as he's on that great white throne, earth and sky, everything flees before him. That also speaks of his glory, that he's greater than creation itself. And none can stand before him as he rules and reigns on his throne. We've seen this elsewhere in Revelation already. Revelation 6, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 16, and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. These were all contexts where God showed up in his glory and judgment. So here we see the final and ultimate experience of that. As he rules and reigns, there's there's just this aspect of the great white throne that's worth just thinking about for a while and letting it hit us. To be actually overwhelmed by the reality of the great white throne, of the fact that it's all about him and that we are all accountable to God alone. This reality that is there that we forget, don't we? We forget. We live our days as if there isn't a great white throne. We live our days forgetting that it's all from God. It's all through Him. It's all to Him. We forget that He rules and reigns. And we probably end up putting ourselves on the functional throne of our lives. We forget this reality. And so here we have in Scripture the truth that we need to anchor ourselves in, that He is the one that is on that throne and He rules and reigns. And we should be rightly, appropriately intimidated by that. It should intimidate us. There's a place for that. There's a place for a healthy appropriate fear of God in our lives. And we should let it function in our lives. I I don't think we like it, but it's a good thing for us. I I don't think we like the idea that there's someone who sees everything and rules over our lives in every way and can kind of see through us. Have you ever had someone in your life that can see right through you? If you have a mom or a grandmom or a relative you probably have someone. My mom's like that. She can see right through me. Even now and uh, there was a time just a few years ago, she said, oh, Paul, you, you look tired. And I was like, I didn't feel tired or anything. I felt great. You know, she just looked at me and said, you look tired. And then I realized, you know what? I actually am really tired, aren't I? And she, she picked it up before I did. She could just read my body language, my face, and so forth. She could see right through me. Um, I don't know if you have someone like that. I, I think God gives those sorts of gifts to, often to moms and grandmoms. It's a good thing uh, for that. Uh, we, we, can, we can feel intimidated by somebody who can kind of see us and, and can kind of see what's going on, who has that insight. Uh, and, and we can struggle with that. It's, it's just interesting at, at how we experience these things in life. Uh, we don't always like the feelings. Um, it's, it's sometimes we can feel guilty and we don't need to feel guilty. Uh, I don't know how it is for you, but whenever I talk to a policeman, I don't know if there are any policemen in the room, but I always feel like he's going to say something that I did wrong. I know at some point he's going to bring up something. I know there's got to be something. He's just being nice until he can get to that and he's going to say, by the way, Mr. Buckley, did you know you didn't do this? I'm like, oh, I knew that was going to happen. There's a story that's told actually about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes. uh, For a a practical joke, back in the days before internet and telephone and so forth, he sent a telegram to 12 of his friends. Very short telegram. On the telegram it said, all is discovered. Flee at once. All 12 of his friends left the country within 24 hours. That's that's how the story goes. So there's this reality that we can experience at times, uh, perhaps when we don't need to, but before the great white throne, we should have those sorts of feelings. There's a great white throne I'm going to stand before, and God in his rule and reign is going to see right through me. He's going to see everything. I did. He's going to see everything I felt, everything I thought, all my interest, all my affections, all my actions, everything in my life. And that day is coming when I will stand before that great white throne. And He's seeing me now in my life. He knows all, and it all will be revealed on that day. I will stand before Him. And there's a healthy, healthy fear of God that we should have in our lives. We should live in light of that day as a reality. It should function in our lives. And and there's all sorts of good things that come from this, by the way. All sorts of good things. We may not think so, but it it is a good thing to live in the fear of God. It teaches us to refuse the deceitfulness of sin. This this alternative life of disobedience to God, not believing Him, walking in ways that are disobedient to Him and destructive to, to us and others, sin, it's deceitful. And we can be deceived, and we can think, well, th- it might be okay to kind of indulge here and do a little bit of this. It's not that bad. And, and sin has a way of doing that in our lives, actually. It, it kind of tempts us, and it gets us to think that maybe this, this twisted pleasure, and that's usually what it does. It takes a legitimate pleasure, a legitimate thing, and twists it so that God's not at the center. God's not the source and the center for it. And so we twist things, and then we indulge it. And it's deceitful. And it gets us to, to get involved and forget that there's a great white throne. Sin doesn't want you to remember the great white throne. It wants you to forget that. But if we remember the great white throne, it will serve as an an antidote to that temptation, to the deceitfulness of sin, to recognize that there's a God who sees all and will judge all, and he lives in unapproachable light. And that light will, on that day, shine into every dark corner and expose every single thing in our lives. So how ought we to live now? We ought to run to God for grace. We ought to refuse to fall into temptation and into these, these terrible things. Sadly, this past week, I learned of a prominent, well-respected pastor uh, who's pastor of a friend. Uh, and he's well-known. If I mentioned him, you probably would recognize him. He had to step down because of sexual immorality. It just came out. Um, and it had been going on for, for years. And it was a shock. And a disappointment for so many. I don't know the details, but I know that for this pastor, the one I'm talking of, just like for all of us, sin is deceitful. And if we forget the reality of the Great White Throne, we can think that somehow this foolishness makes sense. I'm sure you have stories like this, I have others as well. But living before the Great White Throne causes us to run away from that insanity and run to grace, and run to God, and to run to one another, by the way. So God's design is not just that we live in the fear of God alone, but with one another. That we help each other be ready for that day. Really, that's my job, that's your pastor's job in this church, is to make you ready for that day as best we can. To be ready ourselves, and to make you ready, and by God's grace, to help others be ready. And so together we can help each other be ready for that day. We, we do that many different ways. And what we're doing right now, being together, worshiping. One particular way I think that, that I wonder about with this brother who fell this past week, I wonder if this was going on, is just confessing our sins regularly one to another. Doesn't mean you tell everybody everything. But it is part of your life that you have maybe two or three people that are trusted people, you can confess your struggles, your temptations, your sins. So there's no area of your life that is hidden. My guess is that that wasn't going on in this brother's life. And if you're not practicing regular confession of sin and struggles with somebody, it is likely that you're hiding something. And so it's good for us to live in light. And 1 John, we're called to live in the light, right? And we, we have an advocate for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. When we live this lifestyle of confessing sins, when we do it one with another, it is good for our souls. It protects us. And we as a pastoral team are committed to this one with another, um, to be regularly confessing our sins. And and as I was reflecting on this, I realized we need to strengthen that a little bit. But it's been a regular practice for us to do that. And I just want to encourage you. It is a healthy way, a helpful way, to be ready for that great white throne. To live in the fear of God, to live helping each other, sharing our struggles, praying for each other. And God will use that, I think, to make us ready for that day before this great white throne. God himself will judge all people. So The second point I want to talk about, that it's all people that are there before the throne. There are no exceptions. All people will stand before him. We see in Verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And, the bo- and books were open. So it's, it's the dead. It's, it's all those that have died physically, great and small. It's all of humanity. This is, the great and small is a term meaning everybody, all types of people, all standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And as we watch what proceeds, everyone's judged according to those books. So this is all humanity. Believers and unbelievers, everybody, before God. There's, everyone is there no matter what their position in life. All of humanity is standing before God. And, and so this is speaking in this sense that, that we're all brought to life physically. So all the dead physically are now brought to life. So it's, this is the resurrection, the final resurrection of the righteous and unrighteous, of those who have trusted in Christ, those who have rejected God and, and Christ, uh, are all resurrected physically. We all have a body at this point, and we stand before God, and we all will be judged, and we all will experience eternity as souls in a body. That's part of the teaching of Scripture. We don't go as, as bodiless souls into new creation or damnation. We go as humans, full humans, body and soul, into eternity. So all the dead are brought alive, they, all, uh, they're, they come from the sea, Death in Hades gives up their dead. All the dead, great and small, are there before this throne. Every human being. Every human being must face judgment. There are no exceptions. Every human being throughout all the earth, throughout all time, will now, in, at this moment in Revelation 20, be alive and before this throne and face the judgment of God for everything they have thought, said, and done. No one will escape this day no one. there are no exceptions all humanity will stand and this is of course taught through the rest of scripture paul in romans 2 is talking about the judgment of god he's talking about the judgment of god in relationship to those uh, particularly jewish people who might think that somehow you know they're, they're extra special to god and they will somehow you know can be the ones who judge and won't get judged themselves so he says in romans chapter 2 verse 2 We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, speaking of the evil things in the non-Jewish cultures. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hebrews 9 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment day, the final day, is the ultimate reality for all of humanity. This is a sobering and life-changing truth. And it affects us on many levels. In terms of this aspect, it it helps us understand we're all accountable. It levels humanity, doesn't it? All are are accountable before God himself, no matter who you are. There are going to be all types there. The ground is level. There will be great people and obscure people, famous and infamous, renowned heroes, unsung heroes, young and old, all the ethnicities, all languages, all time periods. They'll all be there, perhaps billions and billions one vast crowd before this great white throne, all equal, equally accountable to a glorious, overwhelming God. It helps us understand. It helps us put ourselves in the right place. I think it should create uh, humility in our lives, no matter who we are, because we can kind of think maybe in our lives because of our status or our title, maybe we're different or extra special. No, you're going to stand before the throne just like anyone else. You're going to be judged by God no matter who you are. I, um, I remember a, a trick for public speaking. Um, it's supposed to help you get over nervousness. I've never used this trick, by the way, uh, but I remember hearing about it. and I think it was when I was a kid, when I first, like seventh grade, you have to give your speech in front of an English class. And somebody said, just picture everybody you're speaking to in their underwear. Now, I've never done this, just so you know. I think it would be distracting, not helpful. Um, but supposedly that this, uh, this trick helps you just realize, you know, there's no reason to be intimidated. They're all just people. They're all just human beings. Um, well, I don't suggest that trick necessarily. But on Judgment Day, that's a metaphor. We will all be metaphorically in our underwear before our great and holy God, and there will be no title you can cling to, no reputation that you can cling to. You must stand before God along with all of humanity and be judged by the Holy One. You cannot hide behind anything. He will see through you. He will see every aspect of your lives. And all humanity will be there. And he will judge us with a perfect and eternal justice. Verse 13. Notice how we are judged in verse 13. Universal standard. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. We are all will be judged by what we had done. What we've done in life. The choices we've made. The things we've done. The things we've failed to do as well. And that's not just the actual outward actions, but the inward heart, attitudes, and so forth. We know that because that's how the Lord taught the commandments. They're matters of the heart, not just the hands. And this is throughout Scripture as well. this, This standard of how you live your life, what you do. So 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Romans 2, related to what we talked about, He will render render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Jesus says, I tell you on the judgment day, uh, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. And then in Matthew 25, the, the famous story where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats based on what? What they did, how they treated other believers. He separates them and the the goats go into damnation, the sheep go into eternal life. Now as we read that and understand that, there are, are I think, a couple of reactions we ought to have. First, I think it should make us quake in our boots. Because if we're going to be evaluated by what we have done, if if our lives are examined, the heart level, and every detail and what we've done. I don't know about you, but I'm in a lot of trouble because I have failed to do what I ought to do. I have done what I ought not to do, and I have failed to do what I ought to do, and I can just simply look at the Bible to see that. I can look at Jesus and who he is. I can look at the Ten Commandments and use that as a a measuring gauge to look at my life. It's interesting. We have this little booklet that we use in sharing the good news of Christ called How Good Are You? Uh, and I recommend everyone have one of those uh, handy. They're, they're uh, well done. And in it, what, what you do is you start out by asking somebody how good are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you? And you ask people, and most people will give themselves about a 7. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, they give themselves about a 7. They don't want to say 10 and they, you know, most people don't feel so bad about themselves that they give themselves a 3 or a 0. Most give themselves a seventh. But then what you do is you take them through the Ten Commandments and you start to ask them the questions. Because if you ask somebody, have you obeyed the Ten Commandments? And if they know the Ten Commandments, they'll be like, eh, I never murdered anybody. I'm okay. But then you start walking them through these commandments. And the first four commandments are about really loving God and honoring God with, our, with all of our lives. And that pretty soon becomes clear that we haven't done that. Then you look at the next commandment, uh, honor your father and mother. And I don't think there's a single one of us that could say we've always done that right. Um, if, there, if there is anyone here who's done that, I'd love to meet you. Uh, next, uh, murdering. Oh, not, I've never murdered. Well, then Jesus says, have you ever been angry with somebody? Angry at the p- to the point where you're basically murdering them in your heart, and you've disobeyed this commandment. Adultery. Uh, one might say, no, not committed adultery. Well, if anyone who lusts after someone, anyone who looks at another person and desires them, You've committed adultery in your heart. Stealing. Well, maybe you've never actually stolen something, but have you ever stolen time that is at work? You're on the clock and you're goofing off, you're using the time to do something else, rather than improving yourself and your work or whatever. Uh, uh, Next, bearing false witness. Have you ever kind of just misrepresented the truth, you know? Just strategically misrepresent, misrepresented the truth. Mm. And then the commandments on coveting, not desiring someone else's stuff. We've all fallen short, right? I, I hope you can say yes. <laughs> That's the reality. We don't like that. We, we kind of like just, like, can we not talk about that? Can we just talk about all the good stuff we've done? And, and stuff? Well, the reality is when we use that standard, we see we're falling short. So if the final judgment is based on what we've done, then we're in trouble. And yet, if that were the end of the story, God would still be good and just and holy. If the result of Judgment Day was that that standard was used, and that's the end of the story, and all of humanity, save Jesus Christ, is rightly judged as falling short of God's good commandments, he still would be good. But there's some more to the story, right? When we see in the passage, there isn't just one book, there's a book that records what you've done, and there's this another book. It's books, plural, that are opened. There's another book. And thank God for this other book. The book of life it's, it's called here in Revelation. And it's, and it's referenced often through Revelation. It appears in Daniel chapter 12 as well. It talks about the books being opened. It doesn't call it the book of life there, but it says the book. And the book in Daniel 12, 1-2, is, is the book of life. Paul refers to it in Philippians 4-3. It's, it's throughout the book of Revelation. And it's It's an important book. Actually, in Revelation 13, I think we have this verse to put up. Uh, Earlier on, we saw this. It says in 13.8, And all who dwell on earth will worship it. And that is talking of the beast. All who dwell on earth. Every human being is going to be mesmerized by the beast and will worship this beast. And it says, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the difference ultimately... For those who refuse to follow the world's ways and rebel against God and follow the beast to to worship false gods and live in a a false system. the, the, The reason behind why people don't do that is because their names have been written before the foundation of the world in this book of life. And in the book of life in Revelation 13 is described as of the lamb who was slain. So there's more to this book of life. So, in chapter 20 we read, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this book of life makes all the difference. Being in this book of life makes the difference. It's not the hope of your life somehow meeting a standard and somehow God saying, Oh, this one was pretty good. You can come on in. Or, you know, your good works outweigh your bad works. You know, we put them on a scale, and you got more good than bad, and you're okay. No, the reality is one sin is enough to be committed forever to eternal separation from God, to damnation and righteous judgment. There is no hope for you if it's in your good works. There's this other book, this Lamb's book of life. And how do you get in there? How do you get in that book, right? That's the the question for this day, this great day. How do I make sure I'm in that book of life? That's the thing you want to know. Because if you're in the book of life, you, you have chapters 21 and 22 to look forward to. And all the good stuff we'll get into there. All that it represents, all that it means for us. How do you get in? Well, as I said, your name is written before the foundation of the world in this book of life. There's an aspect of this that has to do with God Himself. God does it. God, in His great love, sets His affections on us before time began and says, I want this one, and your name is written in the book of life. That's a glorious truth, a wonderful truth. And that's one we should ground ourselves on. But you might be thinking, well, okay, so I'm sunk if that's not true. Well, we can look at things from the divine perspective, divine sovereignty. Divine sovereignty never denies human responsibility. So I would just suggest, rather than focus on whether or not you're there, uh, look at your own responsibility. And then through that, understand whether you're in it or not. So both aspects are, are represented in Scripture. Romans chapter uh, 10, actually, is a w- a 9 and 10, It's a wonderful example of putting these things side by side. But it addresses the human side in chapter 10. So how do you know if you're in this book? This, this, this Lamb's book of life, it says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Straightforward and simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. With a heart one believes and is justified. You are counted righteous through faith. Not because of your good works, but because of Christ, through faith, you are justified through faith. For with the, the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So from the heart flows the mouth. And then someone who confesses is genuinely saved. It's straightforward. It's believing and responding to Jesus. This is the Lamb's book of life. It's the Lamb that was slain. Jesus has come for us to rescue us from judgment. When we talk about being saved or salvation, there's a lot of aspects to salvation. Salvation is the the state of being saved. But but who do you save? When you save somebody, what's going on? They're in danger, right? If you go to the beach and you you hear, I had the lifeguard save somebody, you, you immediately know they were drowning. They were in trouble. What is it that we're saved from in Scripture ultimately? Judgment on the final day judgment on that day. Righteous judgment. We're saved from that through Jesus. Jesus went to the cross to take your judgment. To take my judgment. Amazing. And the amazing offer of the gospel is that Jesus went to the cross as God and man and took your judgment and if you simply turn away from yourself and sin and to Jesus, put your faith in him, trust Him, your judgment is paid by Him fully. And there's no more judgment that awaits you. You are forgiven in Him. You are counted righteous in Him. And now He's with you and for you, and He's going to help you live and look like Him more and more. That's the good news. He's the Lamb that was slain. And this book of life is the book of the Lamb that was slain. And it's through believing and trusting and, and speaking that with your mouth. I believe you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus that you are saved. That's the good news here. That's the other book. That's the other aspect of what's going on here. That's how you get another book. Now, if you have believed like that, the, the scripture teaches us behind all that is God in his sovereignty, and he actually wrote your name. It's a mystery we don't understand, but he wrote your name before time began. And that is why you have now acted that way. But those are mysteries that are hard to understand. We trust God in that. Focus on the fact that we're called to trust him and live in that. And then when you are in that place, recognize, thank you, God, that you actually, before time began, worked all this stuff. I don't understand that, but I'm safe because my name's written in this book. That's the good news. That's the, the wonder here. That's, that's the difference on this final day when we stand before this great white throne. That's the, all the difference in our lives is, are we in this book? Now, there are other aspects here I don't have time to address least not too much. For the believer, your name is written in that book and you are safe, but your life will still be judged by your works. It doesn't mean that you will lose your salvation if your works somehow you know, are seen as evil, but your works will testify to the reality that you belong to him. They will do two things. They will testify to the reality of your faith. They will, they will make it clear that you believe. Now that doesn't mean your, your life is stellar. Think of the thief on the cross. He didn't have a whole lot of life to be judged by as a believer. But what did he do? Because there was new life in him, he refused to mock Jesus. And he said, remember me. Right? And that's in his life. That will be in the book and it will say, look. Look at this work. This guy trusted, even on a cross, when he could have mocked, just like the other guy, he didn't. He trusted Christ. That will testify to his faith. So he was judged by that and rewarded accordingly. In scripture, it's clear. Believers will be rewarded. There's a lot of scriptures we could look at uh, on that, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's speaking of building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He says, if, any, if, uh, if anyone's work is, it will be judged, he, oh sorry, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but it's only through fire. So speaking of church leaders, if you build on Jesus and you build well, there'll be reward. Even if you don't build well, that'll be judged, but you'll still be rescued. Colossians 3, I love this verse. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So 23 and 24, good news. Everything we do, everything we do in Christ's name uh, will be rewarded. Every act of faith, every Godward obedience, every kindness, every patient moment, every prayer, every second of faithfulness and suffering, every offering given to the Lord, every act of love, all these things will be remembered by the Lord and rewarded, but ultimately it's all grounded in the fact that our names are written in the book of life. And it's the Lamb's book of life. Jesus has done it. That's where our hope is. It's in Jesus and being written in this book. That's our hope for Judgment Day. We will be accountable, but but we will be safe in Jesus because it is the Lamb's Book of Life, if the bank could come up as I close. Uh, the story is told of a dejected soldier in the time of the Civil War. He was sitting outside the grounds of the White House, and a young boy came up to him, asked him what was wrong. The soldier told the young boy uh, that he'd been trying to get into the White House to see the president, to make an appeal because he had lost his, uh, his family farm. And every time he tried to go in, the guards would not let him go in. And the boy said, Come with me. So the soldier followed the boy, and the boy walked onto the grounds, walked up to the guards. The guards stood back and let the boy walk between them and took the soldier. The boy walked up to the White House right in the front door. The soldier followed. He walked down the hallway. The soldier followed. He walked into a, a room without knocking, opened it up into this library, and there is the President of the United States. Walks right up to the President. The President looks up at the boy and he says, the boy says to the, the President, Father, this soldier needs to talk to you. Now, that boy was Tad Lincoln. The soldier gained an audience with the President of the United States through the son. That's all our hope on Judgment Day. Jesus now we belong to Jesus. We'll put our faith in him. We, we belong to him and because of him we are safe and we are welcomed into his presence. So let us run to Jesus. This is the message of Revelation, right? Let us run to Jesus. Let us put our hope in him. Let us cling to him as he clings to us. Let us live for that judgment day that, that we'll be, not only would we put our trust in him and be safe in him, but our lives would be richly rewarded on that day. Let us look to Jesus And be faithful. Let us live each day for that final day. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for this truth. Help us, oh God, to live each day for that final day. Thank you, Jesus, for the rescue you performed. That in you we are safe. And now, Lord, because of your grace, we can live and be rewarded on that final day. Make us a people who live in you, Jesus, ready for that final day before the great white throne. And use us, O God, to tell others about that day and about the good news that they might be ready as well. We ask in Christ's name.